We are back in the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking this evening at chapter 10 and the 8th plague. But just to give you a quick roundup, it's been some time since we've been together in the book of Exodus. You remember that the book of Exodus is the great Old Testament story of redemption. It is the great parallel to our redemption from sin in Jesus Christ. And you remember the story of the Israelites going down into Egypt during the time of the famine, being preserved through the, uh, the, the proper um, preservation from their brother Joseph, who had uh, been warned by God in a dream. And in Egypt, Israel greatly increased, so much so that the Egyptians and specifically their leader, Pharaoh, came to fear the Israelites, and he devised a plan to weaken them, to humble them, to wipe them out by having all of the male children killed. One of those male children was a boy by the name of Moses, uh, born to Amram and Jochebed. And he was preserved from death and grew up in the house of Pharaoh and then fled to Midian after striking an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. In Midian, he saw the Lord reveal himself to him in the burning bush. And he was given powerful signs by the Lord. He was told by the Lord that he was to lead the Israelites out from slavery. And after some hesitation and being encouraged, Moses went down into Egypt, met his brother Aaron again, and they went before Pharaoh. And they demanded that Pharaoh let God's people go. And thus began a a series of plagues that God brought upon Egypt as Pharaoh refused to let the people of God go. First, there was the plague of the Nile River, turning it into blood. Then secondly, frogs were found everywhere. And then thirdly, there were gnats, flies, found everywhere within Egypt. And then the Egyptian livestock began to die under a plague. And then boils were brought upon the livestock and upon the Egyptians. And then most recently we saw a plague of deadly hail come down just upon the Egyptians. You may recall that God set a distinction between his people and the Israelites. And everywhere where the Israelites were, there was no hail. But where the Egyptians were, there was hail. And now after Pharaoh has yet refused again, we see at the end of chapter 9 that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And so we pick up our text now this evening in Exodus chapter 10, and we're going to look at the first 20 verses of this chapter. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Exodus chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. 
For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this evening that you would teach us from your word, that you would remind us that you indeed are God, that there is none like you. Lord, Help us to see you, to worship you, and to love you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There is something interesting that happens as children grow up. As they move from the earliest of grammar school ages, first, second, third grade perhaps, into the higher level grades, and then especially into the junior high and senior high years. What begins to happen is that children change. Now, I don't mean that they 
they grow or that their, their bones uh, take on a different structure or that their health is different. No, I mean they begin to change in their outlook on the world. As children grow, they begin more and more to be influenced by what is around them. The influence of children moves beyond the immediacy of the family to their friends, to what they see in the public, to what they see out in the world around them. And if we're honest with ourselves, that happens with adults too. We just notice it, I think, more with children. We are more influenced than we are willing to admit by the world around us, by the testimony of people around us. And, and this is something that we are bound to as human beings. And God understands this. And he has his own influence and testimony for his people. The Lord is not silent. He doesn't just let the world speak, but God speaks, and he speaks by way of a testimony to his people so that they will remember that he is God, and they will remember the things that he has done. And so here this evening, as we come to the eighth plague, in the midst of this monumental struggle between God and Pharaoh, between the Egyptians and the people of Israel, it's interesting that in the midst of this struggle, in the eighth of ten plagues, that God uses this, he pauses, as it were, to take this as an opportunity to give a testimony of who he is. A testimony for generations to come far beyond the Hebrew slaves. We here today have that testimony in this word. Thousands of years later, the testimony of the Lord our God goes on. And so this evening, I'd like us to see three things about God's testimony. First, we see the testimony proclaimed. God proclaims his testimony. Second, we see that testimony rejected. It is rejected by Pharaoh and his servants. But then third, praise the Lord, his testimony is confirmed. It is confirmed by Moses and Aaron and the works that God performs. A testimony proclaimed, a testimony rejected, and a testimony confirmed. Let's begin then by looking at God's testimony as it is proclaimed in the first six verses of chapter 10. The first thing that we see here at the very beginning of chapter 10 is that God cannot be silenced. Now, stop for a moment and think about where we are. There have already been seven plagues that have come upon Egypt. Seven times God has come to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron and demanded that his people be set free. And with varying actions, Pharaoh has refused. There have been times when he has pretended to obey and then come back. There are times when he has challenged God outright. But in the end... He has refused to obey the command of God over and over again. And so we might think that God is being shut down. That his testimony is worthless. I mean, think about this from your own perspective in your family. Which one of us likes to tell their children to do something seven times? I think by the about the time you get to four or five, you've had it. 
if you're anything like me, you sometimes get so frustrated, you tell them to do a certain task, you just, you do it yourself because you're tired of asking. You're sure that they haven't heard and they're not going to hear. That's the key. They're not going to hear. But that is not how God views this. He is not silenced by Pharaoh's disobedience. He's not silenced by Pharaoh's false repentance. It was just in the last chapter, in verse 27, Pharaoh had said, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. He had just so-called admitted to his sin. And then it seems moments later, he had gone back on that. And that reminds us, I think, that it is completely insufficient for us to have a vague, insincere repentance for our sins. God does not want that from Pharaoh. And you know what? God doesn't want that from you either. He doesn't want you to be vague in your repentance. He doesn't want you to lack sincerity. No, he wants you to be sincere. And our confession of faith has a wonderful phrase about repentance, it advises us that we are to repent of particular sins, particularly. What that means is when you know you have sinned, you repent of that sin. So if, for example, you have gotten into an argument with your spouse, you don't go up to them afterwards and say, I'm sorry I wasn't very nice to you this afternoon. No, you say, I'm sorry that I said this phrase to you. Will you forgive me for saying that? You are particular in your repentance. With particularity comes sincerity. It comes owning your sin. God is not silenced by false repentance. He's also not silenced by an apparent failure, by seven plagues coming and going. And that's because God's purpose is clear. It's interesting that, in fact, God is doing the hardening here. God is increasing the hardening. He is turning up the pressure. Look with me at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. God is increasing the hardening beyond Pharaoh to even his servants. Now this is in response to what we saw earlier in chapter 9 verse 34. That when Pharaoh saw that the hail had ceased, he hardened his heart, both he and his servants. And so they hardened their hearts. And so God now hardens them even further in their sin. And we see the the result of this later in this chapter as both Pharaoh and his servants are hard-hearted and against the Lord. So this testimony that God gives is proclaimed. And it's very clear in verse 2. The what of the testimony is clear. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Now what Moses is to do is to tell in the hearing of generations. And it's interesting that this word that is used in the Hebrew doesn't mean mere speaking. It actually has the sense of recounting something reciting something, 
telling it over and over again so that it will be remembered. I think the best example of this that I can give in the Old Testament is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You remember in that chapter, parents are told to repeat the goodness of God to their children, to do it over and over again when they stand, when they lie down, when they go out, when they're in the home, at the doorway. Everywhere they are to keep recounting it. It's as if they're writing it in a book orally so that it will not be forgotten. And what are they to repeat to generations? Well, the Lord says, repeat how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. Now, this is an interesting phrase in and of itself. God is, of course, dealing harshly with them. It's not very nice to turn the now the blood. It's not very enjoyable to have frogs in every part of your home or to have hail rain down upon you and kill your livestock. That's certainly true. But there's another aspect to this verb. That is, it has the sense of God making a mockery of the Egyptians, of doing mighty things among them. And the best way for me to think about it is in terms of what the plagues mean. It's as if the Egyptians say, well, you know, our river, the Nile, is a god. And God says, oh, yeah? You think it's a god? It's turned to blood. It's as if God says, you think there's a frog god? How about I send frogs everywhere? It's as if God says, you think there's a god of heaven who protects you? How about I bring hail down upon you? In the future, he's going to say, so you think there's a sun god? How about I blot out the sun? And what God is doing here is he's making a mockery of the idols of the world. He's not only showing that he is the only true God, he's showing that all other so-called gods are false. And so these signposts are set as a testimony by God. For whom are they given? Well... Moses tells us, literally, they are given for their children and their grandchildren. But there is more than a literal meaning to this. There is a metaphorical meaning to this. What God is really saying is that this will be a testimony to generations. On and on. What God is saying is this is a testimony to us. Right here, right now. Do you doubt that God is God? Are you sometimes intimidated by the idols of the world? What God is saying is, is that they're vain. They're foolish. That he is the only true and living God. And so God takes this very seriously. He he says that I will give this testimony and it will be such like has never been seen. Has never been seen and shall never be seen After this, we see in verse 14, the locusts that are to come are like have never appeared and will never appear again. God takes his testimony seriously. Then the second thing we see starting in verse 7 is that the testimony of God, even in spite of its persuasiveness, is rejected by Pharaoh. And so we see that the servants of Pharaoh represent Pharaoh's legacy. They are his children, as it were. And so they say, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? 
Now, when we first hear this, we think, finally, somebody gets it. The servants, they know what they're doing. They're trying to persuade Pharaoh to do the right thing. They're on the right side here. But I think that's looking at this text too quickly. I don't think that they are impressed by God. I don't think that they want to submit to God. The best analogy that I think I can give to you is that they are like political handlers. They want Pharaoh to say the right thing so that they can get a positive result. It's almost as if they're saying, you know, we don't believe in all this Lord stuff anyway. But listen, we're tired of the hail. We're tired of the frogs. We're tired of the flies. So do what you got to do, stand up, say the right words, call it a day, and let's move on. We see this all the time in our society, don't we? And I think one of the clues to this is the way they refer to Moses. They say, how long shall this man be a snare to us? They don't even use Moses' name. Of course they know Moses' name. He's been before them over and over again. He was a prince of Egypt. But this phrase, this man, is a derogatory phrase. It doesn't just mean that guy over there. It means something like, do we have to keep listening to this guy? Who does he think he is? Well, all right, I guess if we got to make things happen, but, you know, I don't really like this guy at all. It's, It's a derogatory term. It's almost as if they're spitting it out. And if you'll notice, they too do not want to let Israel go. They say, let the men go. Don't gloss over that. See, we can read that too quickly, and we think it's Pharaoh's idea to only let the men go. No, it's the servants' idea. They want to keep Israel here because they know if only the men go, then Israel will not be truly free. And so we see this in Pharaoh's servants, but we also see it in Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not humble. We see this from the language that he uses. He hasn't been humbled, which is ironic because all of this conflict has come about because Pharaoh described in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, that he wanted to humble Israel. That's what started this conflict with God. And yet he doesn't realize that God has humbled him. And so even the way that he speaks to Moses and Aaron gives us a sense of his lack of humility. Look at verse 8. Now this is where I think the written page doesn't help us. If we read this phrase as, Go serve the Lord your God. It says one thing to us. But if we read it as, Go! Serve! It says something else. And I think it's more the latter than the former because if you look at these two verbs, this is the exact phrase that Pharaoh uses in chapter 5, verse 18. But this second verb, serve, can also be translated work. And you remember what Pharaoh was saying in chapter 5. He was saying, go, work, get to work, don't stop, no breaks, make bricks without straw. Pharaoh still thinks he's in charge in spite of all that has happened. And so he attempts now to trick Moses. 
this is interesting because after all that's happened, you would think that Pharaoh would see his own shortcomings, but he doesn't. He looks to Moses and he says, but which ones are to go? Now, it's a humorous question almost because it's been clear up until this point exactly who is to go. This is no real question. Everybody knows that all the Israelites are to go. Why does Pharaoh ask this question? He asks this question because he's trying to trick Moses into thinking he's giving him something and that he'll jump at the first offer. Oh, of course, yes, just the men. The men will go. Thank you, Pharaoh. Thank you, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh wants this because if only the men go, then they will keep the children hostage. They'll keep the women hostage, and the men will have to come back. But I think there's also something more than just hostage-taking. And the reason I think this is because I've traveled throughout the world. Pharaoh does not want the children of Israel to see and participate in the worship of God. This is the enemy's way throughout all time and in all places. A few decades ago, I was uh, teaching at a seminary in Ukraine. And one of the things that I learned from talking to the people there in the church was that even during the height of the Soviet Union, church services were allowed to be held with one provision. Only adults. No children could be in the service. And now today, in China, the Chinese government is seeking to prohibit children from attending worship, from attending Christian education, from even having a part in private schools. Do you know why that is? Because Satan knows that if he gets the children, he will cut off the seed of the church. And he knows that we are tempted to say, well, as long as we can do it, that's okay. When the kids grow up, they'll be able to participate. But the truth of it is, if children are not steeped in the testimony of the Lord, they will want no part of the worship of the Lord. So Pharaoh is trying to cut off the church. He's still not humble. He's still acting like he is in control. Now, you may have heard stories about the end of the Second World War about how when Hitler was in his bunker, how he was acting as if he was still in control of great armies. He would sit oh, and look over a map, and he would tell his generals to move these divisions from here over to here, not realizing that those divisions didn't exist anymore. And that the place that he thought was still occupied by German troops had long been overrun. He was acting as if he was still in charge of a nation and an army when really he was only in charge of a crumbling empire. That's what Pharaoh is doing here. Now, Pharaoh still rejects God. And we see this even in the way that he speaks about God. Again, you have to get the tone of verse 10 here. There's, there is sarcasm being used by Pharaoh. The Lord be with you. It's almost better translated, the Lord had better be with y'all because you need protection from me. That's what he's saying here. And he's easily contradicting the Lord when Moses and Aaron say, no, we will go with all of our 
children, and all of our livestock. He says in verse 11, no, the men will go among you. They will serve the Lord. This is a very strong no. It is the strongest way to say no in the Hebrew language. Pharaoh is leaving nothing to chance. And he even is presumptuous. He tells Moses what he wants. Do you notice that? No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that's what you're asking. I don't know about you, but I just heard Moses ask for the men, the women, the children, and the livestock. Do you see that? Are you reading verse 9 along with me? You see what that takes for Pharaoh to say that? To put words, not only to put words in Moses' mouth, but to put contradictory words in Moses' mouth. What is our hope then? We don't live in Egypt, we're not slaves, we're not under the thumb of Pharaoh, but we realize that we live in a world that is hostile to the church, is hostile to the faith, is hostile to God and to Christianity. What is our hope as the testimony of the Lord is rejected in Hollywood, in the media, in government, in our culture? (coughs) Our hope is that the testimony of God is confirmed. It's confirmed by God, and we see this in verses 12 through 20. It is confirmed by Moses and Aaron who follow God's word. Do you notice what Moses and Aaron do not do? They don't argue with Pharaoh. Now, it may just be that eighth time's the charm here, and they realize there is no arguing with Pharaoh. He's crazy. So they just go right out of his presence. And as a matter of fact, Even when Pharaoh tries to push at them, they don't try to negotiate. All they make is a very firm statement. When Pharaoh says, you can take the men, they say, no, absolutely not. We will make no exceptions. We will all go. We're even taking our animals. They stand firm on the word of God. So a question I have for you this evening is, are you that firm in your stand on the word of God? What will we do when society tells us that we cannot teach our children? What will we do when society says we cannot preach the gospel, that the Bible is hate speech? Well, I can tell you right now, if the Lord preserves me, my plan is to go to jail. Because I am not stopping preaching the gospel because someone tells me. Now, the easy thing about that is I can say that here right now, knowing that that's not happening at this moment. But we need to be thinking about what will happen to our children and our grandchildren as the pressure of our society comes to be greater and greater upon us. Because, brothers and sisters, that's what Christians around the world experience. That's what they experience in China. That's what they experience in Sudan. That's what they experience in India. That is the ordinary course of the Christian life. To experience the hostility of the world. The testimony of God is confirmed by Moses and Aaron, and it is confirmed by the word of God itself, because the word of God is very clear. God's word tells us that we are to train up a child in the way in which he is to go. and Then he will not depart from it. And we train up that child for the child's sake, so that they will have that testimony of the Lord. 
so that they will hear of the goodness of God. We see this in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 44, where the psalmist writes, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but set them free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm save them, but by your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. The testimony of God is repeated from generation to generation for the sake of the children. But it's also repeated for the sake of the parents. You remember Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2. That Eli had withheld the testimony of the Lord from his children. And they embarked on a life full of sin and rebellion. Destroyed themselves, their families, and nearly destroyed the nation of Israel. You see, we need to recount the testimony of the Lord for not only our children's sake, but for our sake. The testimony of the Lord is confirmed by His Word, but it is also here in this instance confirmed by the plague. This is a very severe plague. It is very heavy, Moses tells us in verse 14. The locusts came up over all of the land and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. It was worse than the seventh plague. Now, you have to remember that seventh plague of hail and how disastrous it was. But we know here that that was not a complete disaster. Because there were plants and trees that survived that plague. How do we know that? Because the text tells us that the locusts ate up everything that the hail had left. So God leaves nothing. His testimony is confirmed by this heavy plague. And it's also confirmed by the effect that it had on hard-hearted Pharaoh. Look at verse 16. Pharaoh does something unusual. He hastily calls Moses and Aaron back. This is the first time that we see this kind of language. He doesn't just call them back. He doesn't say, get around to sending an envoy and bringing Moses. He says, no, get out there and get him quick, quick, right this minute. You can almost feel the nervousness in his demeanor. And then he acknowledges for the first time that he has sinned against the Lord your God. You may remember in chapter 9, in verse 27, he said, I have sinned. Very generic. No expression of having sinned against God. And yet now here he realizes that he has sinned against God. Now make no mistake, he's still insincere here. But at least it's touching closer to home to his heart. Now, finally this testimony is confirmed by God's sovereign purpose. Even though Pharaoh's repentance is not genuine, he even says, only this once, forgive me. It's almost as if he's saying, okay, I understand maybe I didn't do the right thing in the eighth plague. You can't put one through seven on me. Only this once. 
even though Pharaoh will be not genuine in his repentance, and even though Pharaoh does not let Israel go, God's sovereign purpose goes forward. We see this even in a foreshadowing. Do you see what Pharaoh pleads in verse 17? Plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. That should remind us who know the end of the story that this death is still coming. It's coming in the tenth plague. That God will have his purpose accomplished. That Israel will be redeemed. That Pharaoh will be humbled. That the testimony of the Lord God will be throughout all of the world. From generation to generation. We see this throughout the history of Israel as the Israelites go into the promised land. Over and over again we hear of the Canaanite tribe saying, Well, we heard what happened in Egypt. We heard of the wonders. We heard of the power of your God. And they're all shaking in their boots. Not because some ragtag group of soldiers has crossed the River Jordan, but because they've heard the stories of the wonders of God. God's testimony is confirmed by his sovereign purpose. So what does this mean for us as we close this evening? I want to remind you that the enemy of your soul, Satan, hates covenantal relationships. He hates not only the covenantal relationship of God's people with God, but he hates the covenantal relationship of the family. It is not a coincidence that of every institution in our society today, the family is under the greatest attack. You can see it even in something as plain as statistics. Attorney General Barr gave a speech at the University of Notre Dame in which he said that it used to be that 20% of children were born without fathers in the home. And then he said, when back when I served previous administrations, it was up to uh, 35 to 40%. He said, now it's up to 50%, and there are areas of cities in which it's upwards of 80%. Satan wants to destroy the family. He wants to destroy husbands and wives, children and parents. And it's our job as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to carry the testimony of the Lord to our family. Secondly, we need to be aware of the temptation that the world brings to us in our families. The world says, do you really want to be that different? Do you really want to separate your children out from other children? Do you really want to deny them their favorite television shows, their favorite movies? Do you really want to be so uncool? Don't you want to be like everyone else? And if we're honest with ourselves, the temptation to fit in is very strong. Because when we resist that temptation, it costs. It costs money. It costs relationships. It brings pain. And so finally, I want to encourage you. There's an old proverb that says, charity begins at home. I want you to think about that in the King James Version. In other words, in the authorized version, the King James Version, charity is the word used for love. Love does indeed begin at home. Evangelism begins at home. 
We should be concerned about world missions. We should be concerned about outreach in our community. But let us never forget our homes. We must begin there with a testimony of the living God who has redeemed us from our sins by the work of Jesus Christ. We should not be ashamed when our children grow up in the church. And young people, you should never be ashamed because you have a boring testimony. When you come and talk about your faith in Christ and you say, well, you know, my friend was on drugs and my other friend went to jail, but, you know, I grew up going to church. And so that, my testimony is my parents brought me to church and I believe in Jesus. That's a great testimony. That's a testimony for generations upon generations. May your children have that testimony. May your children's children have that testimony. That is the work of God in the midst of his people. Even in the midst of trials and suffering like we see here for the Israelites in Egypt. Trust the Lord. He is indeed the only true and living God. Let's pray.